Daniel chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, we read, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God, and they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into a den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, That Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or in the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king. And said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve, Continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of the lords that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. You'll remember that the chapter began with a description of Daniel's new position in the new administration of the Medes and the Persians. Babylon has fallen. A new administration is in control. King Darius and Daniel and two other governors have been tasked with the oversight of 120 provincial districts in verses 1 through 3. The governors and the new administrators apparently seem to concoct a plot to destroy Daniel by exposing some fault or failure in order to accuse Daniel before the king. It would appear that that plot is motivated by envy and jealousy. And of course, when they're unable to find fault, they persuade the king to enact a law and then sign a law that temporarily requires everyone to petition the king only, effectively making it a criminal act to pray to God, punishable by death in verses four through nine. So in this passage, Daniel 
praise in verses 10 and 11, providing evidence to present to the king to prosecute Daniel in verses 12 through 14. At that point, the king understands that he's been manipulated by selfish and evil men whose only point in concocting the law is to destroy Daniel. And so in his distress, he attempts to formulate a plan in order to deliver Daniel in verse 15. But the law is the law is the law. And the king will execute the law, but offer his own prayer for protection in verse 16. Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. So it begs the question, what do you do in a crisis? What do you do in the crisis? What will you do when you have experienced some overwhelming physical disability? What will you do when your husband says goodbye? What will you do when your children embrace rebellion? What will you do if you experience a financial collapse or lose your job? What will you do when you face some sort of diagnosis that seems to indicate certain death? What will Daniel do? He's going to pray. He is going to pray. Now what's interesting about our passage is, but what will happen if you refuse to pray? In Daniel's world at this particular moment, it's as if he, if he could refuse to pray. Pray, if he refrains from praying, if he just if he does it in the silence of his own heart, if he does it when everyone else is asleep, if he forgets about it just for a moment, it could be that the crisis will be averted. For Daniel, the temptation isn't to commit some grave sin like bowing down to the statue on the plains of Dura like it happened in chapter 3. For Daniel, the test is to do exactly the opposite of what God asks him to do, commands him to do, insists that he do, that he trust him, that he pray to him, that he petition him. What's your trial today? Now remember what we've already noted. Daniel is probably in his mid-80s at this point. And so here's what we know right off the bat, that just because you are mature doesn't mean that no test will come, no difficulty will come. Whatever your test, whatever your trial, whatever your di difficulty, you need to ask this question. What role will prayer play as I face the difficulty or the test. Let's look at Daniel's daily prayer. Look what it says in verses 10 and 11. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, that is the law, he went home. Note, he didn't 
run for his life. He didn't go, you know what, I'm going to go somewhere where this law doesn't apply to me. He went home and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as was his custom since early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. In these verses, we discover an overwhelming amount of information about Daniel's personal life and about Daniel's prayer life. Daniel is aware of the new law and he's going to violate the law. And so right from the start, we learn something that Daniel, by and large, isn't a law breaker. He's a law keeper. He doesn't hate the government in the sense that it's an unjust government. He's a member of the government. He's placed in a position of authority and propriety. And his job, as he sees it, is to promote righteousness and to restrict evil. Daniel's willingness to break the law in order to obey God's law seems resolute. He, it, it doesn't seem like he has to take time to consider it or meditate on it or evaluate it. He purposes in his heart that he is going to obey God. We're also given a glimpse into his character. Daniel's prayers, remember, are an admission of dependence and humility. But who knew that his prayer would also become an act of bravery? He prays in the direction of Jerusalem. Why do you suppose that is? And by the way, the Bible doesn't say that we're required by law to pray towards Jerusalem. Why is Daniel praying towards Jerusalem? I, I think you know the reason why. He lives in Babylon, but his heart is in Jerusalem. He prays towards Jerusalem because Jerusalem is home. Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Jerusalem is the place where God's Messiah is going to come. Jerusalem is the place where Jeremiah and Isaiah have promised, promised, promised that the Jewish people are going to return. Jerusalem is the place where the Messiah is going to be revealed. Jerusalem is the place where God is going to make a provision for sin. Daniel knows, he knows that the children of Judea, of Judea have been removed from Jerusalem because of their sin and their disobedience to God. But Daniel believes that Jerusalem is going to play an important role in the future of the Jews, and dare I say it, in the future of the whole world. The whole world is going to benefit because God's plans and purposes isn't to leave you without a savior, but to provide for you a mechanism so that your sin could be forgiven and you could be reconciled to God. In Daniel chapter nine, later on, Daniel, we find him praying for the forgiveness of Israel, for the restoration to the land. In that chapter, we read, 
about Daniel's intercession, his confession of his sin and the sins of his people. He reviews Bible history in that chapter. He confesses that the nation has been wicked and that God is righteous to do exactly what God has done to them. He knew the warnings of Moses. He knew that his people deserved far worse than what they were experiencing. He prays for Jerusalem, even though the city is in ruins. And I want you to think about that for just a moment. Jerusalem is empty and ruined. He doesn't pray about what Jerusalem is, but what Jerusalem could become. And sometimes when we look around at our life and we see that our relationships are ruined or that our financial circumstances are ruined or that our health is ruined, instead of focusing on what God has provided for us, why pray for a desolate city? Why pray for a desolate marriage and desolate relationships? Why pray? Almost invariably when somebody comes to me and they say, I have this problem, I have this need, I have this situation, and I'll say, have you prayed about it? What? What, what do you, you mean it's come to that? Well, we laugh, but you understand what I'm saying. It isn't our first go-to. The reason why Daniel prays for his people and for the city I want you to think about this. It's because God promised an end to their captivity in the book of Jeremiah. God promised a return to the land and that the city was going to be rebuilt in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 through 14. In Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 10 through 24. In Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. Remember what I've already told you. Daniel doesn't show up in Babylon empty-handed. He has the scrolls of the prophets. He unrolls them. He prays over them. He believes them. Daniel believes these prophecies and he turns his belief in these prophecies into believing prayers. And so now all of a sudden we have a different perspective about the prodigal prayer ministry. We have a different perspective because we have a Bible that we can open and a promise that can be given. You can pray for your children who have wandered away. You can pray for your grandchildren. You can pray for your marriage. You can pray for your country. You can pray for your church. And note, he kneels. It's an act of humility. It's an act of dependence. And it's an act of urgency. He doesn't just kneel in the morning. He kneels at noon. He kneels at night. And by the way, in that position of kneeling, does that mean you have to kneel when you pray? No. But sometimes kneeling is exactly the right thing to do. Why? Because it's a physical picture of humility. It's a physical picture of dependence and urgency. He is kneeling because guess what? The need is great. In the Bible, Solomon 
kneels at the dedication of the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 13. The psalmist urges us to kneel before the Lord our God, our maker in Psalm 95, 6. Jesus kneels in the garden of Gethsemane in Luke 22, 41. The leper kneels before Jesus when he cries out to him and he prays for cleansing. Solomon knelt in reverence. The psalmist kneels in worship. Daniel kneels continually. The leper kneels for cleansing. Stephen kneels when he begs God to forgive his murderers. Paul kneels when he prays for the faithful saints in Ephesus, in Acts chapter 24, verse 36, Daniel prays three times a day, which speaks of frequency. There's a note in verse 10 that reminds us that that was his custom. And so think about this. History, frequency, humility, Thanksgiving. In Psalm 92, we have an example of a psalm or a song that was sung on the Sabbath. It's a psalm of praise and thanksgiving. If you have a chance at some point, maybe this week, you might want to think about opening up Psalm 92. In the first three verses, he gives thanks to God. Thanksgiving is made for judgment on the wicked in verses 4 through 9. And then thanksgiving is is made because God has elected and purposed in his heart to bless the righteous in verses 10 through 15. So what do we know about Daniel's prayer life? We know that he's a man of deep devotion to God. We know that he's a man who expresses thanksgiving to God. He's a person who expresses his humility and utter dependence upon the Lord his God. We also learned that Daniel prayed when King Nebuchadnezzar demanded that if his dream was left uninterpreted, Daniel and his friends were going to die in chapter 2. When Daniel's friends were getting ready to face the fiery furnace, they called upon the Lord for a solution to their problem. Here we're given an ever so brief glimpse into the prayer life of Daniel, but what a glimpse it is. We think about the immediate circumstances of the prayer. Remember what's already happened in the text. Babylon has fallen. Those of you who are somewhat familiar with the book of Daniel, you may not know this, but the events of chapter 7 have already taken place. This is sort of a parenthetical note. For those of you who have read ahead, this is a moment in time and space. And when we look at that, Babylon has fallen. Darius is the king. The king has been duped by evil government officials who's convinced him and manipulated him to sign a law making it illegal to petition any deity except the king himself. You should always beware of any law that says you can't pray. What a ridiculous thing. Even when they outlawed prayer in school, everyone said, so long as there are tests, there will be prayer in school. 
You can't make people stop praying. What is the most ridiculous thing that you could do? It's to ask the people of God not to love their God, to trust their God in humility, to depend upon their God. What do you suppose Daniel prayed? We're not given the specifics. Whatever it is that he prayed, it was clearly a prayer of thanksgiving. That's what it says in verse 10. And supplication, that's what it says in verse 11. Supplication is a word that we hardly ever use in everyday conversation. Even though it's a Bible word, and even though it's a word that most people should be familiar with, some people see that word supplication and they go, I wonder what that could possibly mean. It literally means to make a request or a petition. Every mother is familiar with this term who's ever had a child say, will you give me whatever it is they ask for? That's supplication. Petition and supplication, it literally means to make a request or to make a petition. What is it that Daniel might be asking? He might be asking for wisdom concerning himself or the king. He might be asking for courage for the deliverance of his people. He might be asking for something else. He may be asking that even as he's praying that nobody's going to find out that he's praying, but the, but the, but the, Political powers that be have already gathered around Daniel's house. Are they spying on him? Is what Daniel is doing, is it in secret? No. Apparently, it's known in, to all people. In the New Testament, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray for a personal relationship with the God of heaven. When the disciples asked Jesus, he instructed his disciples to say, Our Father, to pray in faith, which art in heaven, to worship, hallowed be your name, to pray with a sense of expectation, thy kingdom come, submission, thy will be done, petition, give us this day our daily bread, confession, forgive us our debts. Jesus reminds his disciples to acknowledge their dependence. How? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What is your crisis? For Daniel, it's a matter of life and death. It's that kind of a crisis. It's the kind of crisis that you could die. What is your crisis? What are the stakes? And for some of you, the stakes are just as high. You have a life-threatening disease. You have a marriage that's about to dissolve. Your job is at risk. Your future is at risk. And Daniel prays. He prays because he believes in the power of prayer. He knows that God's going to listen. He knows that God's going to answer his prayer. You know, it could very well be that our refusal to pray, 
our refusal to pray individually and corporately might be the single most important reason for apathy and indifference or worse, our spiritual impotence. It could very well be because we are depending on ourself and we are not depending on the Lord that we're experiencing the doldrums. I have to believe that revival is coming. I have to believe that human beings' lives are going to be changed. I have to believe that as I prayer, pray for the salvation of the people in our church, because there are people who come here, and they come here as a matter of religious duty, but they've never experienced the life-changing manifestation of the real presence of Jesus in their life or Jesus in their marriage or Jesus in their home. And so we pray. We pray with an object in mind. Remember, as Daniel is praying, he's praying towards Jerusalem. In what sense? Remember, the object of Daniel's prayer is the future. In what sense? Because the future is in Jerusalem. The promises are going to happen in Jerusalem. God's people are going to return to Jerusalem. So what do we pray? We pray with an object in mind. Our future isn't here. Our future is somewhere else. Our future ultimately is in heaven. We're not praying towards a physical Jerusalem. We're praying towards a heavenly Jerusalem. There is a Jerusalem that's going to literally drop down out of the sky. It is going to be the permanent possession of the saints who know him and love him. Amen is right. You don't belong here. You won't remain here. You have a future, and your future isn't in the hospital room, and it isn't in the divorce court, and it isn't in, all, in the therapist's room. And I'm not saying that there aren't situations where you shouldn't go to the hospital, because you should. And I'm not saying that there aren't times when we need counsel. What I am saying is that that's not your future, and that's not your hope. We pray towards Jerusalem because that's where our future lies. We pray for the salvation of our children. We pray for the salvation of our grandchildren. We pray for our family. We pray for our friends. We pray for our enemies. Instead of complaining, we should be explaining and offering thanksgiving. What is it that you're looking for? What is it that you want? We pray. Do you think Daniel's detractors are going to be dissuaded by his prayers? Do you think as the detractors are listening to Daniel, make supplication and petition and offer thanksgiving? Can you imagine Daniel's enemies hearing Daniel's words, whatever they are? I can't but help believe that Daniel's prayers must have been thanksgiving, not for what he didn't have, but for what he did have. The promise and the assurance of God's word, the promise and the assurance that no matter what happened to Daniel, the children of Israel are going to eventually leave that place. They're going to occupy Jerusalem and they're going to fulfill God's will. And the same is true of you. I'm going to pray for you. 
I'm going to pray that God fulfills his plan and his purpose for your life. I'm going to pray that God will reveal to you what your spiritual gifts and callings are. I'm going to pray for you that you will come to realize that as your future unfolds, it's going to unfold for the glory of God. What distracts your prayers? What hinders your prayers? Is it accusation? Is it satanic activity? Is it unconfessed sin? Is it carnal motives? Is it fear? Is it unbelief? Is it refusing to submit to biblical teaching? Is it refusing to forgive or be forgiven? Is it because what you think you need is motivated by fleshly carnal impulses? Or because you really want in your heart what God wants for you. And look at Daniel's detractor's prosecution. Look what it says in verse 12. And they went before the king. Think about this for just a moment. They go before the king. They speak concerning the king's decree. Pause for just a moment. Have they listened to Daniel's prayer? Yes, the text says so. What has he done? He's offered petition and supplication to the God of heaven. What is their interpretation? Whatever he's asking for, it isn't coming from the king, and it isn't directed towards the king, and therefore it's illegal, and therefore they're going to kill him. I want you to just pause and think about that for a minute in the hopes that one day your children will overhear your praying. What is it that you're praying for? Are you afraid for your children to hear you pray, Father, save them. Father, heal them. Father, deliver them. Father, provide for them. Father, instruct them, guide them, lead them, reveal sin to them so that they would turn from their sin and turn to the Savior. The detractors, the accusers, quote, have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any small G.O.D. or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, the thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Do you understand what the accusation is? He's a hater. Daniel's a hater. He hates you and he hates Babylon. Babylon has fallen. He hates the Medes and the Persians. Now, I want you to think about what's happening in the text. The enemies of Daniel bring forth the accusation. Didn't you just pass a law that makes it illegal for any man petitioning any God or any other human being other than you, O king, within 30 days that they shall be cast into a den of lions? Didn't you just sign that law? Remember what you said. Zero tolerance. Let me help you think that through. When you have a law that has zero tolerance, it means there's no room for justice, 
There's no room for mercy. There's often, there's no room for common sense and common decency. When you have a zero tolerance, the chances are you have no room for grace. And so, the accusers are quick to point out that Daniel's a captive of Judah. I want you to pause again and think about that. What does it mean that he's a captive of Judah? He's a Jew. Do you think that when they use the term, who is one of the captives, it's another way of saying, he's not one of us. He doesn't belong with us. He's a Jew. Now, the reason why I'm bringing this out is because, again, this is not just a hint of anti-Semitism. And again, Satan is quick to point out that you are captives of sin. The Bible says that Satan is the great accuser. Can you imagine Satan before God in heaven says, that person is a so-called Christian. This person claims to be a Jesus lover and a Jesus follower. Look at what they're doing. Look at who they claim to be. The accusers and conspirators quickly spin the activities of Daniel into a personal plot that attacks the king and attacks the law. Daniel didn't just simply slip up. Look at, he broke the law in the morning. He broke the law at noon. He broke the law at night. This isn't just a slip of the tongue. This is a deliberate, willful act of disobedience. And what's the truth? Are Daniel's prayers a reckless disregard for the king's policies in person? Or are Daniel's prayers a part of his deeply held beliefs that the God of heaven not only requires but deserves worship and praise? What does Daniel pray? He's praying to fulfill not just some religious obligation. His prayers are a manifestation of his fellowship with the creator. His prayers are the kinds of prayers where he knows that only God is going to be able to give him what he needs. It is only the God of heaven who's going to provide protection. It's only the God of heaven who's going to provide cleansing. It's only the God of heaven who's going to provide the fulfillment of prophecy. It's only the God of heaven who's going to return the Jews to their land. It's only the God of heaven who's going to fulfill the prophecies in order to allow the Messiah to come, to live the perfect life that you can't live, to die on a cross for your sin and to resurrect you from the dead. Only God, the God of heaven, is going to be able to do that. And the irony isn't lost on the writer of this text Daniel's prayers were never meant to harm the king. How do we know that? We're going to slip ahead real quick to verse 22. Look what it says. You guys already know. It's not like it's a big deal and I'm letting the cat out of the bag. Oh, Daniel gets delivered, by the way. He gets protected and delivered. In verse 22, it says, My, it says, My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths 
so that they have not hurt me because I have been found innocent before him. And also, O king, look what it says. I have done no wrong before you. Has Daniel harmed the king? No. Harmed his kingdom? No. Who has harmed the king and the kingdom? It's the wicked, unjust people who are trying to manipulate the law in order to make it difficult for Christians all over the world. Daniel's prayers were never meant to harm the king. And our prayers are never meant to harm anyone. We don't, our prayers should never serve as tools to harm people who are harming us. The king's distress, look what it says in verse 14, and the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased, note, with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him and he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Now think about this for just a moment. He was greatly displeased with himself. He's the king. He could have very well been greatly displeased with the people who manipulated him and put him in a position that put Daniel's life at risk. I need to pause again for just a moment. There's much to consider in this complex sentence. The king is displeased with himself or distressed. The exact reason isn't made clear to us. Is the king upset and distressed because he's been manipulated by his subjects in order to put a valued member of his staff at risk? Is he upset and distressed because he loves Daniel? Does the king blame Daniel in some way? Why does the king want to save Daniel? Does the king want to avoid the consequences of what he now knows to be a very bad law? We're actually not told. Is it possible the king simply doesn't want to lose a very competent and valuable servant? Whatever the reason, whatever the reason, the king wants to save Daniel. And here's the irony. This same king who was duped to believe that everyone should be made to make petition to him can't find an answer to save him. It shows you the absurdity of the law and the petition itself. And the king quickly begins to realize the absurdity because guess what's happened? The king is trapped by evil political operatives and his own immutable decree. And this is the irony. The king is going to stay up all night to try to come up with a solution to Daniel's problem. And I want you to just make a little mental note for the next time we come to this particular passage of scripture and we unfold the rest of Daniel, I want you to be thinking about what the text says what 
the king did all night and what Daniel did all night because guess what? The text doesn't tell us what Daniel was doing. There are important lessons to be learned by legislatures in this passage. I know that there's no governor here. If you're a legislator, I don't know it. If you're watching, you need to go on notice. You need to have discernment. We need lawmakers with vision. We need lawmakers that before making decisions, they should think about both the intended and the unintended consequences of whatever law that they fashion. What are the consequences of this law? In the book of Proverbs, it warns in Proverbs 29, 20, do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him, unquote. Be careful when you make a law. Be careful about who it's going to help and who it's going to harm. The king of heaven wants to deliver you from your sin. Now, again, I want you to think about the irony here. The king of heaven, unlike the king of the earth, has ample resources to deliver. You see, there are people that we go to and we say, will you please help me? Will you help me? Will you help me? And there are things that we can help with, but there are immutable things that we can never help with. None of us is able to permanently forgive a person's sins. None of us can cleanse you from unrighteousness. None of us can promise you heaven. None of us can do only what Christ can do. In verse 15, it says, Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it's the law of the Medes and the Persians, that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. The wicked, manipulative government officials will not let it go. It doesn't matter if the law is wicked. It doesn't matter if it's harmful. It doesn't matter if it's unjust. The only thing they want to bring to the king's attention is that it can't be changed. And this is the same action accusation that is made about you in heaven when Satan screams, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus says, but the gift of God is forgiveness in Christ Jesus, the Lord. It's immutable. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins, it shall surely die. It's immutable. What you sow, you will reap. But aren't you grateful to God for the gospel? That there's a gospel that your sin can be forgiven. That grace can be imparted to you. That forgiveness and hope are a part of your future. The wicked, manipulative government officials are basically content that the law must not change. You know what's interesting to me? It's not true in our case. We can change unjust laws. We're not living in Babylon. 
We're not living under the regime of the Medes and the Persians. We live in the United States of America. We have the right to petition our government. We have the right to elect legislators who value religious freedom. We have the right to, to elect people who will take into consideration our deeply held conviction that we are a people who are free and must remain free to worship God, to worship him in spirit and truth, to proclaim the gospel, and to give people hope. I'm not telling you who to elect. I am telling you, ask them what they think and ask them what they believe. Ask them if they're going to represent you or to misrepresent you. So the king gave the command in verse 16, and they brought Daniel and they cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. In an earlier chapter, Nebuchadnezzar called on the worship at the statue on the plains of Dura. You'll remember that Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm going to commit you to the fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you from my hands? Yeah, the real God. That's exactly right. Who is the God who's, go who's, the God who's going to show up? Now, what's interesting, again, the king defied any god to deliver the three captives, this king, let's give him the benefit of the doubt, this king expresses the sincere desire, quote, that Daniel's God will deliver him from the sentence he faces under Darius's own decree. Does the king really believe this? Is it just wishful thinking? Does the king really believe it? Does the king really, is, is this something that someone says because it's the polite thing to say? You know, I hope everything works out fine for you. I hope you get well. I hope your husband, your wife repents. I hope your children turn from their sin. I hope you get to keep your job. I hope it all works out. I mean, I know you go to church. I know you have a Bible. I know you read it. I hope it all works out for you. I wonder if he really believes it. I wonder if he really believes that the God of heaven is going to show up on Daniel's behalf. You already read, I already snuck you into the future. Is Daniel saved? Yes. Is God going to shut the mouth of the lions? Is he going to do it in order to make Darius happy? He's going to do it because he has unfinished business with Daniel. God's not done with Daniel. Whatever else it means... Whatever else it means, whether he sincerely believes it or he insincerely believes it, whatever else it means, the king has no power to deliver Daniel. The only person who has 
the ability to deliver Daniel at this point is the true and the living God. You may be faced with a circumstance that the only being in the universe who can save your marriage, save your health, save your finances, save your future, is the true and the living God. The king is aware of Daniel's faithfulness and dependence upon God. I think that that's interesting. Can the same be said of you? Can the same be said of you? Is the accuser in heaven aware that when you're facing your difficult trial, has he found you on your knees? Has he heard you plead the blood of Jesus? Has he heard you cry out for the salvation of your family and friends? Has he heard you cry out for what God wants? I read somewhere that faith may be defined as saying yes to the Savior. In Matthew 9, 28, blind men came to Jesus and Jesus said, do you believe that I can do this? And they said, yes, Lord, in Matthew 13, 51. Jesus asked his disciples, if they understood the parable of the mustard seed, the leaven, the wheat, the tares, the hidden treasure, the pearl of great price, the dragnet, they said to him, yes, Lord. <laughs> now you're laughing because some of you doubt that they, they said yes, Lord, but did they really understand what Jesus was saying? In Matthew 15, 21, a Gentile woman begged Jesus to heal her demon-possessed daughter. At first, Jesus ignores her, and even the disciples attempt to shut her up and send her away. And she said, Lord, help me. And Jesus says, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, true, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs which fall from the master's table. Martha said yes to Jesus when Jesus asked her, do you believe that Lazarus is going to come back to life? And she said, yes, Lord, in the resurrection. Peter said, yes, Lord, to his question about, will you love the people I've entrusted to you? Jesus said, I'm coming back. And John said, yes, Lord, please come back. In Revelation 22, 20, Daniel's brought before the king. According to the text, he doesn't say anything. He doesn't plead his case. He doesn't beg for mercy. He simply goes to the place that's been assigned for him. And by the way, being thrown into a den of lions is a brutal form of execution. There's a re the word den in the, in the Aramaic language, which this text is based on, means to dig a pit or to dig a hole. It means to dig into a cavern. And so this is an underground pit. And the den, in case you're wondering, would have had two openings. It would have had an opening at the top, and it would have had an opening in the bottom. And so when he is 
taken and put in the lion's den, he would have been lowered into the opening. The lions would have entered through the second opening, which was likely located on the side of a hill or an embankment, which led to the pit. And so Daniel is apparently lowered into this pit from the top. And the text doesn't tell us, but it could very well be as Daniel is strapped at the top of the pit and he's lowered into the pit that that's when the king says, you're God who you serve continually. I'm praying that he's going to deliver you. It says in verse 17 that a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of the Lord's that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. You're probably wondering, well, what's that all about? The stone was meant to prevent escape. The stone is put over the top so that Daniel can't crawl out. The seal was meant to ensure that no one else could tamper with the execution order. The signet was worn around his neck. If you're thinking of a ring, that's probably not accurate. It's an intaglio jewel that would have contained the name of the king and his distinct symbol. It would have been pressed into the seal and then he would have made sure that all of the people who were convinced that Daniel should die that their seals were also placed on the opening so that no one could get out and no one could get in. Doesn't it remind you of another stone that's rolled in front of another cave and a seal is placed on it so that no one can go in and no one can go out? But God's going to break the seal in a resurrection. The seal was meant to ensure that no one, no one, not even the king, could tamper with the lion's den. So that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. I want you to think about that for just a moment. The purpose of his enemies? To kill Daniel. The purpose of the king, fulfill the law. The purpose of God, I'm going to rescue Daniel because I have a plan and a purpose for Daniel. Daniel's prayer becomes his really form of protection. We pray to the Father in the name of the Son, we pray in the Spirit. We pray. Because only God can save us from sin. Only God can defeat the devil. Only God restores the backslider. And I want you to think about that because what God can do, pause and think about this, prayer can do. We pray. And God forgives our sin. We pray. And he restores the backslider. We pray. He strengthens the saint. We pray he heals the sick. We pray he sends forth laborers. We pray it accomplishes the impossible. We pray the will of God. We pray first. We pray 
often we pray in humility, we pray in boldness, we pray in faith, we pray sincerely, we pray simply, we pray definitely, we pray in accordance with God's will. The king has no idea that his well wishes are also a prophecy. Because the moment he utters the words, your God, who you serve continually, he will deliver you. The reason why this unbelieving king's prayer can be heard is because he's praying consistent with the will of God. <laughs> and so I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray that God's will will be fulfilled in your life and that you would glorify God in that. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every man and woman and young person who's listening to my voice. Lord, I pray for the crisis that has passed or the crisis that is or the crisis that's coming. Lord, I pray. I pray that your will would be done. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified. I pray that you would be magnified. I pray that they would be edified. I pray, Lord, that your plans and your purposes would be fulfilled in their ministry and in their family and in their children and in their children's children. Lord, I pray that for the person who finds himself or herself overcome with guilt that they would experience forgiveness and hope. I pray for the person who struggles whether or not they're going to go to heaven. I pray that you would impart assurance to them that if they confess their sin, that you are faithful and just to forgive them and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. And Lord, for the sick, I pray that there would be an immediate restoration to wholeness and wellness. And so, Lord, like Daniel, we pray fervently, consistently, in humility, we make petition and supplication. Lord, we ask that your plans would be forever fulfilled. In Jesus' name, amen.